You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Okay, thank you guys for joining us today. My name is Jasmine Stoughton, and I am the project manager for the Mosaic Economic Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. So just a quick word about what we do here. Uh, Mosaic is designed to lift up voices of women experts in the field of economics, entrepreneurship, and technology. Those are fields that are too often um, policy conversations that have been dominated specifically by the same handful of white men. So Mosaic was started to kind of solve the excuse that women experts can't be found in the fields of economics and tech. And we seek out women who have an interest in engaging in the public policy space and give them the skills necessary that they need to convey their expertise to a wide array of audiences, including Congress and the media. So joining me today are three amazing women. First, um, I'll introduce Mosaic cohort graduate, Emily Egan. She has participated in Mosaic's first ever uh, cohort, which was last December. So welcome back. Emily serves as the Director of Strategic Initiative at the Albert LePage Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Tulane University. Um, And there she designs and develops programs that serve the students and alumni founders. We also have Kim Armour here, who is the Chief Financial Officer and Managing Director at Comcast Ventures, where she leads the finance, operations, and investment strategy functions of a portfolio representing seed to late stage technology startup. And last but certainly not least, we have another special guest, Emily Waldorf, who is the Senior Vice President of Strategic Development at Comcast. She has a wealth of experience in strategy, corporate development, growth initiatives, the list goes on and on. So without further ado, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, We can get started with Emily Egan, if you'll just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. So as Jasmine mentioned, I am the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Albert LePage Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Tulane University. In addition to the programming, what we also do is serve as a convener for the broader ecosystem in a variety of ways, one of which being a focus on solving for racial inequities as it relates to funding. Um, So we put out a report each year called the Greater New Orleans Startup Report. Last year, through through our research and through our data collection, we uncovered. Again, I wouldn't say we discovered it existed prior, but we were able to put the data attached to it um, as it relates to the racial disparities uh, pertaining to access to funding and outcomes for entrepreneurs of color within the greater New Orleans area. And so that's one of our primary functions that we can serve within the community is providing that data to be able to address disparities, to see where things are working, where things aren't working. Um, And then prior to that, I've worked sort of with entrepreneurs my entire life, working for the Entrepreneurs Organization, which was is a membership association for entrepreneurs who have uh, companies that gross a million dollars or more. And then I also work for a startup accelerator program here within New Orleans called the Idea Village. So working with very early stage tech startups, um, as well as uh, some other sort of consumer packaged goods and, and different types of businesses. So I'm excited. Like I said, I'm excited to be here. 
That is awesome. Um, I think you are going to be a great addition to this conversation, given your background and everything. Kim Armour, if you'll go ahead and introduce yourself next. Hi, yes, great. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, as Jasmine mentioned, um, I'm the CFO and Managing Director at Comcast Ventures, which is the venture capital arm of Comcast. You know, we support founders, you know, to build meaningful, enduring businesses. We partner with entrepreneurs, you know, to provide that capital and that unique support, you know, through our Comcast parent with, you know, that can offer partnerships, you know, to these entrepreneurs to help accelerate their growth. Um, Comcast has been investing in this space since 1996. You know, I got involved about 10 years ago in 2011. Uh, I also serve on um, some boards of our portfolio companies, including Vox, Lendio, and College Avenue. And I work with the National Venture Capital Association in Washington, D.C. They're an advocacy arm for the VC industry. And I've been, you know, engaged on various matters that started um, last year, mostly with the implementation of the PPP program and some other regulatory initiatives. I'm also a member of the Global Corporate Venturing Advisory Committee. And so think of them as, you know, the global version of the NVCA. And um, I'm on the NYU Innovation Fund Advisory Committee. So Emily, I'm sure we have uh, <laughs> shared stories we can, um, we can swap there. And I'm a proud member of the Mosaic Advisory Board. Thank you so much. And Emily Waldorf. Yes, Jasmine, thank you so much for having us today. This is, I'm excited for the conversation. So as you mentioned, um, the Senior Vice President for Growth Development at Comcast. And what that really means, um, our team focuses on identifying and fostering new growth opportunities for Comcast. So really looking out over the horizon to figure out what are the right places that Comcast needs to play in the future and how do we partner across the ecosystem, buy, build, or partner to create those opportunities for the company down the road. So my responsibilities span from strategy and ideation to investments, including Comcast Ventures, one of our investment arms. Um, we also have um, uh, what we call startup engagement. Startup engagement basically runs accelerator programs and other programming, including investment, to bring startups into our ecosystem to help us solve some of those problems. Uh, my career has largely been in doing this for lots of different corporations and lots of different industries. And so I'm very excited to be here today. Perfect. This is going to be a really robust conversation. We have some extremely impressive experts here today. So going into today's discussion, we plan to explore the intersection of access to private capital formation and new and small businesses owned by women and particularly minority women, how the response to the pandemic, government stimulus interventions, including PPP, which we've spoken on a little bit, um, how those have impacted entrepreneurs and what policies looking forward can and will do to make a difference in accessing private capital for women entrepreneurs. So let's go ahead and get started with the questions. Women entrepreneurs have disproportionately struggled during the pandemic. Yet there are more women business owners today than prior. So I was reading one headline um, from the PBS NewsHour that read, women-owned businesses are driving pandemic growth, but many miss out on PPP loans. So Kim and Emily, I think we're referring to Emily Waldorf here. Kim and Emily Waldorf, can you tell us a little bit about Comcast and Comcast Ventures and how you're working to help women-owned businesses gain access to capital or other resources to grow their existing businesses? 
Um, I can start and Emily can um, jump in after too. We've, we've always focused at Comcast Ventures on the data, you know, particularly around women in uh, VC and women founders. And, you know, I think what's interesting, and I was pulling some information as we were leading up to this, and, you know, it's very timely because PitchBook came out with their uh, Q3 um, year-to-date information today, so which is great because we can have some fresh information here. But a recent all-raise report, which was done um, in Q4 of last year, you know, showed that female funders, so, you know, women who are at VC funds are two times more likely to invest in startups with one female founder and more than three times more likely to invest in a female CEO. So, you know, what that means is any investment in women-led funds stands to have a significantly amplified impact on female founders downstream. And, you know, when I joined um, Venture in 2011, I joined when Amy Vance had took over to manage the fund and um, expand our venture capital arm. You know, it was really early days for women women having partner roles in VC. And, you know, it's really true. And so you look at our investments over the last 10 years, you know, one year we had over 50% of new investments that were with companies that had were either founded or co-founded by women. And so oh, wow. I think having women at the investment table, you know, sourcing opportunities. It's a very networked business. It's only natural that you're going to have um, a wider pipeline. Yeah. And just, just to add to that, I, I think one of the things that we've been trying to do in the last you know, couple of years at Comcast is make sure that we are having that representation at the table. So as Kim mentioned, certainly at Comcast Ventures, um, bringing in you know women leaders who can continue to take a look at what is out there on the uh, on the horizon and speak to companies and network with companies is important. We also do that through several other programs that the company has. So startup engagement, as I mentioned earlier, has a couple of different accelerators. Our accelerators provide not only funding but also programming and resources to allow founders to network with each other, to build their skill sets, to network with funders um, and, you know, venture funds and and other potential funders and with large corporations like ours, you know, that can potentially be customers of their businesses. And so our two accelerators, Lyft Labs and Sports Tech, are both actually run by women, uh, to Kim's point earlier. Uh, And they have about 40% of the last two classes that we've had have included women founders. So that, you know, the 40% of our classes are run by women founders. And so we're starting to see some good progress there in getting, you know, companies uh, off the ground. I do think the two biggest challenges that we often see for women founders, in addition to the networking and just finding the resources to begin with are access to how how do I even go about starting this? You know, I have an idea. I'd love to get there, but I don't know where to start. And so certainly finding a means to capital to get started is a big barrier, but mm-hmm. also the programming, I think, is equally important. And just making sure that we're setting folks up for success when they get ready to start that journey. Either Kim or Emily, I'd be curious as it relates to both from a portfolio side as well as from a performance side within the accelerator. You know, the the data supports the argument that female founders outperform their male counterparts. And so I was curious to know if that's what you're if the companies that you're working with, whether from a portfolio perspective, 
based on what you can share um, and the accelerator programs that you you operate if you're if you're starting to see that that also that trend holds true. I'll defer to Kim on the Comcast venture side simply because we, we invest so early at the accelerator that you know you, you really need to see exactly four yeah. years out before you start to see those results. And I'm not sure that our programs are quite that mature yet. We're in our third year of the accelerator for um, Lift Labs, for example, in sports tech, we've only just launched it in 2020. But um, from the Comcast Venture side, Kim, you may have better data. Yeah, I would also say it's still early days, right? Because when, you know, when I joined into the group, it was, you know, 10 years ago, and, you know, we've been building up a portfolio to, you know, be representative of women founders. And so that's still relatively young as well. But what I can say is like some data that was published today from PitchBook, the one the one data point that I found really interesting was that there's been a huge exit market this year with, you know, being led really by IPOs. And um, one of the points that was made was the female founded businesses have realized about 58 billion in exit value so far this year, which is more than double the previous annual high of 24 billion in 2020. And that's a full year number mm -hmm. versus three quarters of a year. And so I think, you know, women businesses are emerging and as they're exiting and showing success, that's only going to breed, you know, really more success. And it's very much a network business and venture. And so, you know, having more women being able to mentor other women and, you know, help build other women's businesses is, is really going to raise the entire industry. Okay. So then my next question, it's also for Kim and Emily Waldorf. What do you see as the major challenges in this space? And then how can Comcast Ventures and some of the earlier accelerators, how can they work to address some of those major challenges? So it's, I guess, a two-part question, identifying what the major challenges are in the space, and then how are you guys working to address those challenges? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, you hit on the major challenges prior in you know, a study in terms of where capital flows, right? Less than 1% of um, capital went to underrepresented women last year. It dropped a little bit further in, in 2020, I think somewhat from the pandemic. You know, it's a little bit better when you looked at look at businesses that have mixed teams. So where you have a mix of male and female co-founders mm -hmm. um, or founders. And so it's inching up. Um, and so the gains are in the right direction, but, you know, the, clearly there's still progress to be made. And um, I think a lot of the programs and, you know, Emily can speak to a lot of them, you know, because they fall within strategic development that, you know, are very focused on the different ways to support women through, you know, different learnings and curriculums and programming, I think really, you know, is, is impactful for, for us within venture. It's about networks. And so, you know, I mentor a lot of women. I mentor women who are CFOs at some startups. I part of the Women in BC organization, and you just you just naturally network in those groups. And you know, I think I'm always happy to help anyone network into the right people in order to grow their businesses. And so I think you know a lot is having those conversations and knowing who to speak to to figure out how to get access. It's, it's just such a puzzle. And the pandemic, I think, made that a little bit harder, to be honest. And so, you know, a lot of this would happen at conferences and being in these different areas that are focused on 
specific categories that are dedicated to those conferences. And, you know, as those shut down and, and, and went virtually, that kind of natural, you know, meetup of meeting someone didn't really happen. And so I think that's starting, we're starting to come out of that a little bit now. Um, And we had to do a lot of things virtually, but you know, that probably, I think that was probably a pretty big challenge for last year. Absolutely. Yeah. I I, I think just to maybe add to Kim's point, um, for sure that networking is, you know, one of the root causes I think to why it's harder for women to find access to capital. You know, they, they, they have to find the path to where the money is and then how do they attract the attention of those um, VC partners. And we talked about some of the things that we believe help, including representation um, from decision makers at the table. And you know, in addition to just your traditional VC outlets, which are obviously where a lot of money resides today, I think what Comcast is trying to do is tackle the problem from a lot of different angles. You know, we we want to have programming for every um, stage of company that can help people where they kind of meet them where they are and bring them to the next level. And so we have designed lots of different programs, many of which include funding, but not all, to try to find um, potential entrepreneurs where they where they are and you know, give them access to resources that can help them accelerate. And so some examples of that are, you know, obviously we have our accelerator programs. They start pretty early stage, um, often pre-revenue at the um, kind of prototyping or idea stage um, and bring through Techstars and Boomtown and some of our other partners specific programming that are designed to help founders advance to the next level and gain access to capital. But we also have um, our RISE program. RISE is for small businesses that are local and are solving problems for their local communities. And we have grants that are available to women and other um, you know, uh, company founders that are looking for small business resources. We also have Lift Zones, which is um, a program that is designed to find space and give you access to you know, things like internet. So if you are starting your own business, you can you have a place that you can go to work and have access to internet and other resources available in those locations across the US. And, and we have many, many other uh, resources as well. And so, you know, really by trying to find direct programs or programs through partners, we want to almost solve for every problem that we can encounter and help with. And so we have a long way to go, but we are seeing um, tremendous progress on those programs. Uh, My next question is for Kim and Emily Waldorf. So you both oversee venture investing across the country. So since the pandemic, what are some emerging trends that have caught your attention? So looking back to March of 2020, when all this happened, you know, the focus of our team at that point was to, you know, really look across our entire portfolio. We have over 100 investments and it was, okay, let's preserve cash flow. Everyone was like in this preserved cash flow mindset. No one knew um, what the next month, two months look like. And so let's make sure everyone has enough cash for the next 12 to 18 months. That's where a lot of the PPP conversations started to emerge. You know, we helped portfolio companies understand how to navigate that process. The MBCA was really, really helpful um, in explaining that process and doing town halls with us. And so, you know, we were doing a lot, everything moved virtually. Um, And so 
we were moving to help these companies manage, help them access um, resources that were being created, and kind of any type of investing, just any type of new investing pretty much stalled. And the industry, I think, really was the same. But it was, you know, it's kind of fascinating as it because Q2 was pretty quiet. And I think that was broadly true. But then everyone got comfortable in this new environment. Like you started to yeah. figure out how, you know, how, how to work virtually on deals. And, you know, I think the hardest thing for us and is probably true um, for others, it was how to invest in new companies and that you hadn't met in person because it is such a in-person networked or industry. And so people start, started to get comfortable. You, you figured out how to um, build, you know, trust and um, conviction virtually. And, and mm-hmm. you know, once you did that, the industry just really you know, came back and came back strong, right? And so, um, you know, capital hit its new record um, just three quarters into this year. So the numbers out today was that there's $239 billion year to date for US invested um, venture capital versus 166 billion for all of 2020. And so it's just skyrocketed. And, you know, you know, IPOs are having a blockbuster year this year. You know, so as, as everything is up, and I think as founders and VCs do, they look to use innovation to address gaps, you know, which the pandemic, I think, really amplified within a few sectors, but, you know, healthcare, workplace being two of the ones you know, I'll mention here. And so, you know, the new business models that, you know, we've seen in healthcare field investment, I saw a stat the other day that one out of every $5 has gone to healthcare for investing. And it has received more than any other industry with 22% of, you know, total capital this year. So, you know, I think that's a trend, you know, we're all paying attention to and we're all experiencing too, right? None of us, I mean, I never really did telehealth before the pandemic. <laughs> Everyone's finding other ways to do things. And I think, you know, VCs and founders, of course, capitalize on that, which is the beauty of the industry. And I, the other big trend I will talk about too is really the shift to the distributed workforce, which is very true, which is why we're all here on a podcast. <laughs> you know, together today versus uh, being, you know, in person, you know, having taken a, a train to DC and gotten in a room to do this, you know, very differently, but it's going to be the future of how, you know, work will evolve. And I think the investment in that and, and what will come out of that is interesting. Yeah, that's great. Um, Emily, are there any trends, emerging trends since this pandemic that you've noticed or that have caught your attention? Yeah, I agree with Kim. I mean, what you're really seeing is an acceleration of the shift to digital across many industries. And healthcare is certainly one of the most astute, just given this is a health-related pandemic and many people needed to continue to access healthcare throughout it. But we're really seeing that trend take off across many industries, including ones that we're focused on from a connected home standpoint, you know, just the ability and need to make your home more of an entertainment hotspot, you know, has accelerated lots of different trends around entertainment and connected home services. Smart cities, to some extent, are continuing to grow. You know, certainly as Comcast, we have a great interest in the future of work broadly, um, both from an employee benefit standpoint as one of the largest uh, employers. Um, you know, how do we make sure that our employees are um, healthy and connected and, and um, 
safe and happy. And there's a lot of different companies we're seeing that are coming out that are uh, finding incredible solutions to both health benefits, but also cultural tools. How do you manage culture from a hybrid work environment and, and really how do you leverage connectivity as the base of all of that? And so those are some of the places that we've been really focused in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I find it fascinating. That's been a, a side effect of the pandemic is going into all these virtual spaces, whether it be when you're going for your checkup or everyone working virtually. And we've had this technology for a while. Um, I worked at a nonprofit health center a couple years ago doing um, compliance of all things, but we we were working on our telehealth program for a while. And I mean, all of a sudden, you know, this thing that we'd been working on for years was just implemented immediately. We found a way to make it happen. And it is, it's going to be very interesting to see what sticks around as things go back to normal because yeah, it definitely makes it easier to have a podcast when everyone can just hop in a Zoom room rather than the time that it takes to get on a train and come to the studio. Although that is a perk that I miss. <laughs> it's traveling a bit. So Emily Egan, you are based in New Orleans. So I know that a lot of your work revolves around startups and innovation in New Orleans, and you said the 10 parishes. So could you explain a little bit ab about the trends that you've seen on a micro level? Because I think that, you know, we've talked about how this looks from um, a national level trends that we're seeing, but I'd be interested to hear um, what you're seeing on, on a smaller scale. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I kind of wish this conversation was happening in a few weeks because we will be releasing our 2021 Greater New Orleans Starter Report. So we've got some interesting data there to sort of showcase how we sort of weathered through the the pandemic but i would say overall we see the same similar trends as it relates to an influx in capital which is great i would say that's primarily due to um, a little bit more capital actually within new orleans so mm -hmm. um, historically speaking new orleans has had a relative has a pretty big capital gap um, and i and i still think we we do have that challenge but within the most recent years even within the in the middle of the pandemic, we got, um, or rather I'll rephrase this, we didn't get, um, but Gail Benson, who is the owner of the New Orleans Saints and the Pelicans, created her own venture fund called Benson Capital Partners. Oh, wow. um, and so that was an introduction into the ecosystem that we did not have prior um, in terms of the types of checks and the, inf and the investments that they're going to be making and have made over the course of the, over the course of their past year and a half, I believe, of, of existence. And so that was a sort of a, a real sort of game-changing moment mm -hmm. uh, for, for New Orleans. Uh, you also have some other groups that are expanding sort of their investment. We have a group called Revel Revelry who does um, a startup studio. And so, so they're starting to make some really strategic investments within both you know, New Orleans as well as beyond. And so what, what we've seen is that there has been improvement in that in that general area. I think, you know, if you look at the demographic makeup of New Orleans, we still have a lot of work to be done as it relates to equitable access. But I think that those are conversations that are being had on a regular basis and hopefully improvements will, will be made there. From an industry perspective, what we're seeing is, you know, really the need to diversify our industry. So obviously our hospitality, we're hospitality based city. Um, right. That industry got, you know, really affected by mm -hmm. COVID. But then we also have the extra added 
resilience need of hurricane recovery, right? And so with all those things kind of combined, it, it's been really difficult for those indus- that industry to kind of get out ahead and get back to its pre-COVID numbers. But, you know, through what we have sort of working in our favor as we start to look at ways we can diversify the industries, we do have some legacy industries such as hospitality, oil and gas that have not necessarily been pushing our, our economy forward in the way that they used to. But there's a really strong desire to diversify our industry clusters. Biotech healthcare is a, is a great example. We have, you know, Tulane is a is a research institution. You have LSU not that far away. Ashner is a really large hospital system within the within the region. All of which are very interested in in making strategic investments in developing that industry cluster. But we also have, you know, a really interesting asset in the form of the Port of New Orleans, which has um, a number of access points. Uh, within yeah. the the country and as well as internationally. And so, you know, if you're asking me where the opportunity is, just for my pure, just my perspective, I actually think it's in sort of that trade and logistics tech um, mm-hmm. within the within the port. But I, I definitely see the trends are starting to move towards really looking at figuring out the best way that we as a region can diversify our economy. Um, and I think there's a lot of opinions as to how that, you know, what that will be. But, you know, you're you're definitely starting to see the digitalization. What we're excited about is workforce, primarily because of the distributed workforce. We're hoping that what that will mean is a couple of things. One, you know, we'll hear from founders often that talent is a challenge for them and identifying talent. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that this will help them solve for that talent gap to be able to sort of hire people that don't necessarily need to move to New Orleans to work for, for the company. But secondarily or tangentially looking at opportunities for our homegrown talent or existing talent here that don't necessarily now have to move to a different state to work for a company that they could you know live and work here but work for a company outside of the state and we think that that's a great way to you know maintain that talent locally um, as opposed to that sort of brain drain that that some cities can can find can be susceptible to and so we do hope that New Orleans is a is a beneficiary of this distributed workforce. It's a great place to live. We can get past the hurricanes and the heat, but uh, we think that that's going to be a, a good benefit for us. That's a great point, and we'll have to do some sort of follow up on um, after your report comes out because I think that those in- numbers will be really interesting to see. Um, so either in some sort of like op ed or something, I think that that would be a really interesting follow up to this podcast. So Emily, I'm Emily Egan. I'm going to turn it over to you. I know that you had a question or a couple questions about funding access. So I'll let you take over from here. Thanks. Yeah, I just had, you know, I was curious because I come from, you know, I exist in what you would call sort of your, depending on how you want to refer to it as a second tier, an emerging market of, you know, it all depends on, you know, a flyover market, all the, all the different terminologies that's being used as it relates to um, any market that exists outside of sort of Texas, California, uh, New York, and Massachusetts, right? And so, with what, from our lens, what what I see is you have a capital access problem from a gender perspective as well as mm-hmm. you know a racial perspective that can be compounded by the fact that when you live in an area that's outside of those four, um, or you have a company that's outside of those four, which is you know where over seventy percent of that capital of the venture capital money goes from a from a Comcast Ventures perspective, where do you see sort of the opportunities and challenges investing in those, what I would call, you know, I like emerging is better. Second tier sounds a little bit uh, sort of second place, but how would you, 
what are sort of those opportunities and challenges you're seeing within those uh, second tier or emerging markets? Um, and and how are you, from your investment strategy, do you approach that capital gap um, from a geographic perspective? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking previously, which is the pandemic has really helped with geographic gaps, right? And so I think, um, you know, teams are still very much pitching virtually. And so it almost doesn't matter where you're located. And um, and it doesn't have to be that in-person management team pitch that the way we used to operate. So, you know, the way we used to operate is, you know, you would go to conferences, you would meet people, you would then, you know, have all these copies and everything in real life in the city you were in. Or maybe you would travel to another place if it was a company of interest, you know, there, you know, which made it harder to your point, which is probably why there were, you know, there's some lag of um, investment in some of the emerging cities. I think those emerging cities have picked up population as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, it'll be interesting, as Jasmine said, to follow up and see, you know, how that shifts. I'll have, to, I'll, I'll let you know that New Orleans is my, favorite city and um and it was the first place that we went once we could travel again <laughs> that's perfect you know i it's i'm glad you said that aspect of the the virtual element because it was something that i just sort of threw out i was hypothesizing about actually just yesterday um as we were discussing sort of the results from the startup report and the idea that it's possible that you, we've seen improvements due to in terms of even venture money coming from outside of the the city because of the virtual element you know and that it creates an opportunity one that it, that doesn't require the company to travel but it also doesn't require the investor to travel right and mm -hmm. so you know if you're coming if you're going to visit a city and see what you know what those what those opportunities are you want to make sure that there are enough meetings that you can set up to to justify your trip, right? And and so I think that with the virtual element that allows for for that interaction and it, it sort of removes that that sort of barrier that's existed. So I was I'm interested, I was I'm glad to hear you say that. I hope as you I hope it kind of continues a little bit, but do you do you see that as do you see that as something because it's a highly in-person um industry that that could revert back? Emily, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, I, I think people miss being in person to some extent, but they appreciate the when there, there's also wasted time in being in person. And, and that's what you were saying as well. And like, so I think, you know, a lot of us would fly to be in person for a board meeting, but like, you know, you'd be flying in for a day and out for a day and not having a, you know, a full day. And I'm sure Emily, you, you, you see this with all the other areas within Comcast and partnerships that had to move virtually beyond just investing. And it's, I would say it's probably, you know, a mix and, and, and I'm not sure, I, I think the virtual environment works and we've proved it can work. And you see it in the numbers of amount of capital that's being deployed but that's a lot of that still is being done virtually. Um, so I, I, yeah, you know, Emily, I, I agree you with you, Kim. I mean, I, I think, I think I see a lot of signals that would suggest that this, trend will be here to stay. Um, I do think people are anxious to get back to traveling. They miss the in-person networking opportunities. They certainly miss the conferences where you can be very efficient with your time. But at the end of the day, you know, 
our, our venture investors are looking for the very best companies out there and historically have been somewhat stymied by the fact that they can only visit the, the number of companies that they can get to via airplane travel and you know however many they can fit in when they're in those towns somewhat forcing them to focus on the large cities right because that's where it's the most efficient use of time um in fact you know they like that they can find other companies they wouldn't have otherwise been able to necessarily target um, particularly if they're the best company that's going to have the highest return for their portfolio and so I see a mix, you know, being the, the kind of the future state. I do think it's going to be important to get back to those conferences, but I think equally as important will be the time that people are spending virtually to get, you know, to the, the people they otherwise would have missed. And just as a data point to kind of maybe put some meat behind that, we, when the pandemic hit, our accelerator had to go fully virtual last year. And this year, we um, decided to do a hybrid approach where um, we would have a couple of weeks in person, but the rest of the uh, accelerator program would be virtual. This year, we have 11 companies in our accelerator, and six of them are actually from outside of the U.S. Um, oh. So we've been able to really go even more global than I think historically have been able to largely because of this hybrid environment. You know, it's a lot less onerous for both the program management and for the companies. And so, you know, when you start to see those strong results, um, it is more and more fuel to continuing to keep the elements of this that enable it to be more efficient. So that, that would be my guess. I mean, I guess we'll all see together, but I, I suspect that there's gonna be some of these positive elements here to stay. Yeah, definitely think, you know, for our purposes, even just within, sort of working with student ventures, we have a program called the Innovators in Residence. And those are typically people that are, are local. We've had a handful that have been, um, you know, outside of the outside of New Orleans or outside of the state, but mostly local. But with the with the pandemic, what it did was since we went virtual for all of our programming, even though Tulane itself as an institution was in person, you know, we were able to really expand beyond sort of our geographic boundaries. And we were able to engage with people that we we hadn't previously and it just made things much more efficient made things much more impactful because it's just a network access right and so i think hopefully one of the other things that carries on especially as it relates to sort of that network effect for for female founders um is that that virtual mentorship possibilities the the virtual connections yes you cannot replace sort of those in-person moments but geography is no longer a, a barrier right and i think that there's a lot more you know as I can't remember who said, but this technology has existed for forever, right? Or not forever, but for a while now. But now, because of out of necessity, we're starting to use it, and you start to see where those um, where those benefits are. And I think that those benefits hopefully will continue on um, as we start to to move back to that to that in person interaction. It's it's great to see all these programs coming out of the pandemic, um, all these groups and organizations, and um, that have been able to start during such a tumultuous time. Um, it was so great to have you all here, and I really appreciate all of your time. And thank you all so much for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.